Hello and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Guttentag, with Mishpachal's home front, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. Seems the weekend development is that Itamar Ben-Gavir doesn't seem to be on the blacklist in America anymore, at least as far as the Wall Street Journal is concerned. Indeed. And I would say I have the Ben-Gavir goes off message. He's a firebrand, as the, I think the Wall Street Journal have pegged him. And he's certainly someone who makes people sit up and take notice. And he's gone out there and given an interview, which I noticed the location of the interview was rather, I found rather humorously, was B'nai Brack. So there's the B'nai Brack getting into the Wall Street Journal for reasons not to Ponovich Shishiva or anything else. It might be anyone have sat down in for a Thursday night interview in the Chalmot on Rabbi Akiva. What do you think? <laughs> Gedalia, it's good they did it here because of the way President Biden's going, he might not allow Ben Gavir into America. Correct. That was also news over the weekend in which what's called the settler community from the Yudan Shomron, they'd be part of some list that there's going to be sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. And Benyam and I had a conversation with one of the heads of the senior leaders from the Gush Etzion, who said to me, we have no idea what this means. He said, we're waiting. We have no idea. This guy was a leading person who went along to the White House when Trump announced, you know, the Abram Accords, and he went, he's a, he's a significant political leader of the settlement movement. And he said, I've got no idea. Maybe I'm on that. Maybe it'll apply to me. Once laws are on the books, once executive orders are written and given out, then officially this should only apply to a few, a handful of people. But who knows? It could be stretched. So this is worrying. But now back to Ben Gavir over here. It really was an interview that made you sit up and take notice, to put it mildly. He said we would be a lot better under Trump than under Biden. And he said, but the Biden administration is damaging the war effort with Israel. And Trump would allow Israel a much freer hand in tamping down, going for Hamas. And the Biden administration is busy all day now, not with ensuring Israel's victory, but rather ensuring the Palestinian survival and humanitarian issues, et cetera, et cetera. Predictably, Benjamin, this was was going off message because if anything like this is being said behind the scenes, certainly staying behind the scenes, the Isle appeared head of the opposition, Benny Gantz, putative next Israeli prime minister, says that that, that, uh, it's done tremendous damage to Israel. And it's only because of Bibi's weakness that he can't withstand his right wing. I agree to him on that, Benjamin, that I think that this is not Bibi's style and he cannot restrain Ben Gvir as a loose cannon. What do you think about that? In cases like these, Gedalia, you never know if this wasn't planned in advance or if Ben Gvir really went off firing in all directions. There are many times in politics where someone like Netanyahu won't say publicly what needs to be said. And he'll send out one of his lieutenants to send the message for him. Not that I think he has control over Ben Gavir per se, but we don't know if it was orchestrated or not. I don't know that we'll find out, but it's possible that this could have been coordinated in advance, that you do the talking for me, you be the bad guy, I'll be the good guy. It's also possible that Ben Gavir was being Ben Gavir. And he had an opportunity to give an interview with a major media outlet that was looking for him. And the interview he did give. I think that Ben Gavir said things that uh, need to be say, whether you agree with him or not. We talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast, but you can't stifle people's opinions. I don't care whether it's on the left or whether it's on the right. The people who demonstrated last night in Tel Aviv to bring the hostages home now and dump the present government, I might not agree with them personally, but they certainly have the right to go out and demonstrate and they should not be stifled. They obviously have to stay within the law and can't block roads and uh, cause property damage, but they certainly have the right to say what they feel and what they think. And the same thing applies to Ben Gavir. He says things that need to be said. The idea that, you know, forget about a demilitarized Gaza or a demilitarized Palestinian state. Israel needs to stay in Gaza. 
And as far as the option of a Jewish settlement, again, okay, it might be far-fetched at this stage, but again, if that's what he holds and that's his opinion, there's no reason why not to get it out there. And, you know, you can say that 98% of the people are against it or should be against it, but it doesn't really make a difference. Let him say what he wants to say and to get the issue out there. There's a number of points to get to follow on from that. First of all, we had an intriguing tweet from Amit Segal, leading journalist here in Israel, right-wing journalist who's extremely well-sourced, and a response he said that this is the Wall Street Journal interview was Ben Gavir's revenge against the obstacles that the Americans are placing in his path to prevent him from rearming the local, the local defense teams here in Israel. I don't know the background to that. That's a very, very intriguing thing. There's a story there which will be worth knowing and maybe will come clearer, which is that apparently I would have said that Israel has plenty of small arms manufacturers enough to rearm. That shouldn't be a problem. But again, this is the Amit Segal saying, no, there's a subtext over here and there is arms delays in something that is under his purview. Right. The um, U.S. was supposed to provide weapons to Judea and Samaria so that Israeli forces could defend themselves, not wild-eyed settlers, but Israeli army forces and police. And that's been withheld because of the so-called settler violence issue, which is vastly overrated. So that's a good point that Segal made, and it could be that's what's going on. This is Ben Gavir's attempt at putting pressure in some way on the U.S. to come through. But you're right. We should be making these munitions ourselves. We should not be reliant on the U.S. for local defense. For F-35s, I can understand we're not manufacturing an F-35. But for small arms that we need to defend communities in Judea and Samaria and any place else in Israel, we need to be self-reliant. But you know, there's a further point related to that, which is that politics or media abhors a vacuum. And as you said last week, Bibi has been proclaiming a vision loud and clear that the world doesn't want to hear. That's for the day after. Really, there's something overall going, which is that Bibi and across the government has been basically falling in line with the Americans on everything. When the Americans say jump, they say how high, right? So if the Americans say retreat, in early February, they said, get out of Gaza, stop the big operations. Then they say, well, we're not going to. It's only on Israel's schedule. But pretty soon when the messaging the Americans give out, that has to be done by the beginning of January. By mid-January, Israel is complying. So it's kind of like fashionably late. So in other words, the White House has dictated the pace over here. At no stage has Bibi given an indication that it's actually an option to stand up to the Americans. And to me, we discussed with on Thursday the hostage deal. And I was thinking about this further as more details came out. And obviously it's not happened yet. But it's pretty clear that the broad outlines of the deal shocked Israelis from left and right, absolutely shocked them, because it's almost like it's basically raising the white flag and saying, to all attempts and purposes, this thing is pretty much over. It's another Gilad Shalit deal, but 10 times worse. Correct. And it's not just the number of people. They talk of releasing Nukwa terrorists. Some of the terrorists did the thing on October the 7th. It was so shocking when those details, and it's so shocked. That's what prompted Bibi later on to go along and give a speech in the academy, pre-military academy in Aliyah. But you know, there's a sense that even in their here and now, Bibi has not been willing and the government has not been willing to actually say in public to the world to make very clear Israel's position that our positions are so far away that we're literally not going to go. Now, there's a time and place for behind the scenes messaging. But I think at the moment, that's when I say that Israel is lacking a very robust, clear international message. What about the day after, about the here and now? And that is what Ben Gurion has stepped into that, whether it's intentional, possibly, as you say as a kind of message, another, he's being the bad cop in the administration, in the Israeli government, or is very good becoming a loose cannon. I think many people are going to agree to him on that itself. It's not necessarily on his plan for resettling Gaza the day after, but many people are going to agree to what he said in that interview. 
My feeling is, is that if Israel is really winning this war, then they need to wait. Rather than allowing Hamas to control the agenda and to control the negotiations, Israel needs to keep up the pressure like we were doing, at least until a couple of weeks ago, and force Hamas into making a bad deal rather than us making the bad deal. I mean, you know, it ties into an AP report that we have of a the last couple of days in which the AP is reporting that Hamas has begun to resurface in areas where Israel withdrew, for example, a month ago in parts of Gaza City, where they've seen that the reporters they have seen Hamas deploying police officers, making salary payments, some civil servants in Gaza City. And they said that uniformed and plainclothes police officers deployed in their police headquarters, in other words. And then we saw the last couple of days, subsequent Israeli airstrikes near those centers. So in other words, what we're seeing is an emerging thing. Hamas, as I just said before, media abhors a vacuum, or power, obviously, more famously abhors a vacuum. Until Hamas is destroyed as a governing force, they will fill that vacuum. And I think an open question, are airstrikes a substitute? Is that a policy? Meaning, instead of having roots on the ground, people to control it, to make sure they're not popping out their rabbit holes again, are airstrikes a substitute? I think not. And again, it's an open question for the government. The world is making plans. Then the world's not waiting for us. What are the alternatives? What is this kind of half twilight zone in which the Israeli government seems to be operating? To me, it's very worrying to see Hamas returning to little obvious planning other than airstrikes. It's hard to oppose the entire world. I agree. I don't know that I would do a better job if I were in the government's position. You know, it's easy to sit in my studio and to give ideas based on the research I've done and the people I've spoken to as well. However, you're right. At a certain point, Israel just has to say, well, listen, we're here. It's our country. We're the powers that are here. And the truth is, unless the nations of the world, so to speak, are willing to send troops to oppose us, then we really don't have anything to fear but fear itself. So there's a certain point that you at least have to engage in gamesmanship with the international community, if nothing else. But I'll tell you what I'm more concerned about at the Gedalia. I'm more concerned about the U.S. airstrikes on reportedly 85 different sites in retaliation for Iranian drone attack that killed three American servicemen and injured you know, scores others. The U.S. forewarned Iran and their interests, their proxies, about the attack on multiple channels, including the mass media. And by the time they unleashed uh, their attacks, I doubt that there was very much left there in terms of serious military targets or personnel that uh, was worth attacking. And I just don't understand that. You're not going to restore deterrence that way. And it's obvious that Iran didn't warn the U.S. of the drone attack that killed the three American servicemen. So why should America have uh, given advance warning to Iran and its proxies of what it was going to do and when? It's close to as useless a move as possible. We've had parallels over here. We had years and years and years of stuff in which governments, successive governments on the northern and southern fronts, Gaza and Hezbollah, when the terrorists fired rockets at us, they said, they're not going to get away with it. And then every time there was a rocket attack or a small, so hoping to keep the, com the confrontation to a minimum, they telegraphed their intention and then threw some bombs at some empty sheds. And that's basically equivalent to America. When America does airstrikes, everything America does is obviously much greater scale. It's obviously much more massive. And yet this is the basic thing of bombing sand dunes in the Gaza Strip. That's effectively what they do. I mean, you know, when, it, when I'm looking at that, there was something so careful and almost like professorial about the whole thing, about the way to say, please, we're going to do this in a very gentle, a surgical way. And that's not the way. If you're in the Middle East, instead of saying, we don't want war, you don't have to make the other side think, oh, maybe we're going to get a war. You have to terrorize the other side. And to come back to what Ben Gvir was saying, it would have been different under Trump. I stick by that. Trump, 
yes, he made abundantly clear he didn't really want to be involved in the Middle East. Like when Iran launched, took a third of Saudi Arabia's oil production capacity offline with a massive drone and missile strike. And he did nothing. Right. That was a negative. But on the plus side, he put the fear of God into them by killing the fierce and terror leader, you know, the revolutionary guards commander, Soleimani. And so he was enough of the madman, as Richard Nixon used to say, those madman effect. We couldn't be sure what he was going to do. No one, simply no one gives credence to the fact that when an administration so patently wants to be tick the box and be yikes here, they're over of airstrikes on Iran. No one, literally no one, the last people to believe to be quaking in their boots are the Iranians. They're simply not scared. They shouldn't be scared, and they won't be scared as long as this is going to be the U.S. reaction, which leads me to believe that the U.S. is still interested in appeasing Iran and coming up with some sort of nuclear arms deal with them. And that's not going to bode well, especially after what's happened in this region since October 7th. But Gadali, I want to, on what I hope is a slightly more positive note, I'd like to give a shout out to a gentleman by the name of John Spencer. John Spencer is a chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has a podcast. He recently wrote a column in Newsweek, which I read over the weekend. And he mentioned that the sole reason for civilian deaths in Gaza is Hamas. For Israel's part, it's taken more care to prevent them than any other army in human history. And he mentioned throughout his article that when it comes to avoiding civilian harm, there's no modern comparison to Israel's war against Hamas and that they've done things that no other army in the world has ever done. And on one hand, he said they should be given credit for it. But on the other hand, we also have to understand that uh, the reason why we're maybe not as successful as we should be is because we're being too nice. And that's not going to work uh, to our long-term advantage. However, it is important that there's someone of that stature, a military expert at West Point, who's pointing out that Israel is doing more to prevent civilian casualties than any other nation in history in warfare. As you said, a shout out and thanks to Mr. John Spencer. I've driven past West Point, so that's my closest that I've come to that. But can we just take a detour? So I know we normally end on something like that, but I just want to go back to what we said before about the weakness of American foreign policy, at least on this administration when it comes to Iran. And it reminds me that the most cutting classic displays that Margaret Thatcher in the 80s, I think it was against in her Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday in British Parliament, she famously dismissed her opponent with the following words, weak, weak, weak. And that was what she said about whatever it was the Labour people have been up to. And that's what I think. It's just weak. It's just weakness. You know, Margaret Thatcher, we had the alarming news last week in Britain that her successor in her parliamentary constituency, I believe it's that constituency or the neighbouring one, the MP for Gold's Green, that area, very Jewish area, is uh, a man called Mike Freer, is retiring as a local MP after 13 years. And all the reasons he's given is because of alarm. He's been attacked and threatened and harassed over his support for Israel. He's a conservative MP. Now, this man, he's, he's, I I believe he's a junior minister. And it's very alarming that a man like that feels that he has no protection from the state. The state is not willing to stand up to the violence of the Islamists who have been inflicting sort of intimidation, really, on the center of London for months now. We saw over the weekend a picture of a British policeman wearing the full regalia with a tall hat, and he had a free Palestine sticker on his sleeve. And the campaign against anti-Semitism over there said, tweeted that he actually supports him. And I believe this man seems to be of, of Asian persuasion, if you like, based on what he looked like. He's either intimidated or he's part of the problem. This is supporting them. 
And this is the atmosphere in Britain today. This is the atmosphere of intimidation of Israel. Israel supporters are intimidated. Those in government have been run out of office, basically, because of the climate of intimidation, the inability of the state to stand up and protect them and to shut down the Islamists. And it's a very, very worrying thing. And I don't think that's a gloomy thing, but it's the absolute reality. Today, Britain will not stand up to Islamists. And the dictators of the world who are rearming the Chinese, the Russians, rearming at an unprecedented rate, they don't have much to fear from the current lot. They, we, need, we need a new set of Western leaders. Anyway, that's, we're in the market for that. So the call is out, gone out from this podcast that we need an entire generation of change at the top of the Western worlds in defense of civilization. I think on that suitably modest and understated note, I think it's possible to end to wish you and the listeners everywhere a good and healthy week.